you and I have a lot in common because we are new as well. We missed you last week, and it's really good to be back. We are studying the kingdom of God this summer. Jesus began his ministry by announcing that it is here right now. And yet, as Pastor Luke pointed out last week, it's not fully here. It's not all the way here. It's going to be much more here in some other fashion down the road, which raises a question. If we are part of this kingdom, if we have repented of trying to build our own kingdoms, if we have believed that God actually wants a relationship with us, if we are part of this kingdom, what are we supposed to be doing right now as we wait for it to be fully here? Today's passage in Matthew 25 is one of several parables that Jesus told to his disciples to help them understand, here's what you are supposed to be about. And I'm really glad that Jesus addresses this because that is such a misunderstood part of the Christian life. People can tell you what life was like before they came to Christ, and they have a sense of what the future will be like when they are with Christ. But this middle part is kind of confusing. And so for chapters 24 to 25, Jesus is trying to help people understand. And he's trying to help them understand that there is this period of time where he's going to be away, and when he comes back, then life will be a certain way. But before that time, here's what you are to do. And as you read through 24 and 25, you realize that you are supposed to be watching. Waiting and watching is the way that he talks about it, but waiting does not mean that you sort of sit on your hands and, and just sort of, you know, at some point Jesus will be back. Instead, as you keep reading the parables, you realize, no, waiting means you're busy. And what is it that you're busy about? That's what he addresses in today's parable. Now, obviously, in this parable, we are the servants. Jesus is talking about us. And I want you to see three things in this passage that help you understand what it means to be a servant of Christ. I want you to see what servants invest, what they in, why they invested, and the result of their investment. So what servants invest why they invested, and the result of their investment. First, what is it that they're investing? And the answer is only what they've been given. The master does not demand something from them that he doesn't give to them first. So what they're working with, what they are risking, what they are investing is only what he's already entrusted to them. And what he gives them is way beyond generous. We have that word there in the English, talent. Actually, if you go in the Greek and you go look underneath of it, it's a little bit more confusing because the original word is very physical. It's a unit of weight. And in this case, it would probably be some kind of weight of a precious metal. So if you want to think sort of bag of gold, bag of some kind of metal, that would be a good way of thinking about what he's doing. Now, we're 2,000 years later. It's kind of hard to pin down how much was a talent and how much was it worth. If you go and you look at the different scholars, they're fairly comfortable saying it's about 20 years wages for an average worker. One talent is 20 years wages, which means roughly it's half of what you would earn in a lifetime. And that's when you realize the master's really serious about this investing. He's entrusting big dollars to them. It's true that he doesn't give the same amount to each. He gives the amounts to them as they have ability. But even if you look at the smallest amount that he hands out, it's way beyond generous. In other words, the master is not trying simply to get a good return. He doesn't look at the one guy who he eventually gives five talents to and says, you know what, I'm really only interested in return, so I'm going to give him everything so that he really does great for me. He doesn't look at the last guy and say, this guy's probably not going to give me a whole lot back, so we'll take his talent, we'll divide it among the other two. Instead, he entrusts each of them with something. 
He takes all of the risk himself so they can be involved in his affairs. They don't have to come up with startup money of their own. Instead, he stakes each of them, and then he goes away. He doesn't sort of look over their shoulders. Instead, he trusts them. He trusts them to come up with ideas of what they're going to do, of the plans that they're going to have, to initiate the plans, to problem solve. Essentially, he's offering them the opportunity to become junior colleagues, people who work alongside of him. They are accountable to him, but he wants them to use their abilities, and so he funds their efforts. And that's when you realize that what he's really investing in is them. He does want to return. He expects them to do something with what he's given them. They know, verse 19, that there's an accounting coming when he's going to settle accounts with them. But when you read his response to the first two guys, you realize that this accounting is much more than, okay, what's the bottom line here? How much did you make for me? Instead, he's interested in what kind of people they've become, in how they themselves have actually developed. And you see that when he says to the guy who had made two more talents, he says exactly the same thing as he said to the guy who made five more talents. Well done. You are good and faithful. In other words, he's not tying good and faithful to an amount. Instead, he's tying good and faithful to people who have given themselves to what he himself is doing. If all he wanted was a return, there are a lot of better ways to get that than dividing up his wealth among people who have different abilities. He's not looking for simply a return. He's looking for partners. He's looking for people who will work alongside him to take what he has and then make it increase. And you realize that if that's the kind of person he is, if that's his character, then you think, wow, it would be a good thing for him to have a return. Because what is he going to do with his wealth? He's not hoarding it to himself. He's not using it simply for his own interests. Instead, he's using it to develop other people. He's using it to make a better world. He's using it to make a world I actually kind of want to live in. So I would like to see him get a really big return on this. Point one, what they've invested then was only what they'd been given. But why is it then that they invested the way that they did? Well, pretty clearly, for the first two, it's because they love him. Now, you have no idea why. That's an irritating part of the parables. You end up with questions that parables don't always answer. And so you, you're kind of wondering about the backstory here. Like, did the master do something special for these guys? Did he rescue them from something bad? And you have no idea. So here's how you read parables. Don't look for them to answer all your questions. Learn how to take some of those questions, just put them to the back and say, what is the main thing here? And the main point is, these guys love him. They never say it but they show it with everything that they have. You know words are important, but you also know that actions are much more important. They speak even louder than your words. These guys' actions say that they're in sync with the master. Whatever it is that he's doing, they are all in with everything that they've got. He gives them the talents, these bags of money. Verse 16, the guy with five talents went at once and traded with them. There's no delay here. There's no procrastination. There's no, oh, man, I got all these other things I'm doing. You know what? Let me get these other things done. None of that. At once, he goes and trades to start putting this money to work. Second guy does the same thing. Verse 17 starts with so also, and you're supposed to understand the second guy is exactly in tune with what the first guy was doing. And when the master returns, there's an eagerness to show him what they've done. They say to him, verses 20 and 22, 
Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. Or you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. And actually, that word here is a little weak. And again, in the Greek, there's a little more oomph to it. Some other translations will uh, interpret it as see or behold or look. There's, there's an enthusiasm. There's an excitement. You gave me this, and I've come back with this much more. And they are be- beside themselves. They want him to be excited with them. They had the opportunity to work alongside him, to see his holdings increase, to see his influence grow, and they are thrilled just for the sake of being able to do that. Completely not true for the third servant. He doesn't love the master. And again, you have no idea why. You can't argue that the master abused him. He just handed him half a lifetime's worth of income. He trusted him, did not micromanage him, went off on his journey, no questions asked. This is an incredibly trusting, generous master. This is the kind of master that you want to have. Just like the other two, however, this servant's actions speak louder than his words. What's he do? He digs a hole and hides the money. He does absolutely nothing to advance the master's interests which can't possibly be what the master had in mind. If all the master wanted was to have his money back, he could have dug his own hole. He didn't need to go to the servants in order to have them do that. This is the first indication that this servant is acting counter to what the master is trying to do and where the master is trying to go. In other words, he doesn't love him. Later, the servant's going to justify his inactivity, but he'll do that at the expense of the master's character. So basically, he looks at the master and says, it's your fault that I didn't do anything with the money. If you weren't such a hard man, I might have tried. But because you're so difficult to work with, you left me no alternative. Covers up his own disobedience by shifting the responsibility onto the master. He implies, you know what, I might have done something different if you were a different kind of person, but you're not. So this is the only thing I could do. Master sees right through it calls him out. He says, you wicked, slothful servant. You wicked, lazy servant. You knew what I wanted. And even if we accept this twisted world that you have just now constructed, there were other options. You didn't have to just dig a hole and do nothing with it. Saying you're scared is just a cover-up. The real issue is you didn't want to. You didn't want to work for me. You didn't want to spend your time in my kingdom and in what I'm trying to do. And that's when you realize that the opposite of love is not hate. If you hate someone, you're still invested in them. You're still thinking about them. It takes time, it takes energy, it takes emotional energy to hate someone. The opposite of love is really apathy. Now we talked about apathy a couple weeks ago. Apathy is where you just don't care. You don't care so much that you can't be bothered to get involved. And so you just dismiss this other person. You carry on with your own life as if they didn't matter, as if their interests didn't matter to you. That's the contrast that you're presented here with these servants. Two of them love this master. They want to use their lives to see his estate increase so that he can have even more influence than he already has. That's what they've given themselves to. They are thrilled with the results. They've invested what he gave them, but they've invested a whole lot more. They've invested themselves. And you realize that that's always the case whenever you give 
you never give first dollars and cents or time or, or those kind of things. You always first give yourself. It's always about the heart behind what it is that you're actually doing. It's about giving yourself to this one who has given you everything. You see the opposite in the worthless servant. He wants nothing to do with this master, has no interest in working to increase his estate. He doesn't want a master at all. He wants to live his life the way that he wants to live his life. He doesn't want the interruption. Certainly doesn't want to use his life up serving this master. And the point of the parable is that you are either one or the other. You're either a faithful servant or you're a wicked one. And the way that you can tell which kind of servant you are is not by your words. Anybody can say, I love God. Anybody can sing. Anybody can pray. But if the rest of your actions ignore God throughout the week and ignore his kingdom, then your words don't really mean anything. If you are not throwing everything that you have into what he's doing, working to see his kingdom grow, working to expand, working to see his influence increase, you don't love him. You're apathetic. And apathy means that his kingdom and his agenda, they just don't excite you because something else does. You have a different kingdom, a different agenda that does excite you. You want a different master. You don't want this one. And the parable is actually a test case for you. It will help you understand what kind of servant you are. You notice here that this, the terms are vague. Jesus, the, the point of the, mess, the parable, Jesus says, is faithful servants work to invest everything that they've been given so that there's an increase in God's kingdom. But he doesn't tell you, okay, here's exactly what that means. These are the specifics, and, and this is how it works out particularly for you. And that's on purpose. Because after you hear this parable, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to walk away from it, and you will either go at once and work to figure out how that you can be invested in this kingdom, or you're going to walk away and just sort of let the ideas disappear. You're going to dig a hole and, and, and bury them in the ground. When you hear this parable, you will respond one way or another. You're either going to respond faithfully, or you'll respond wickedly. And your response tells you what kind of servant you are. Now let's spend a little bit of time talking about, well, what does it look like then to invest your talents in this kingdom? It's pretty clear that we're not supposed to hang around and wait for the rapture. It's also pretty clear from this parable that we're, the kingdom is bigger than simply evangelizing. Evangelism is important. It's a critical aspect of the kingdom. Pastor Luke talked about that last week. We're going to talk about that again. But there's something else going on in this parable. So let's get at it by asking this question. What was Jesus doing while he was on earth? Because he's the master in the parable. And if we can understand what he was doing, then we can figure out how to line up with him so that we are working alongside him in what he's doing. And the author, Matthew, actually gives us a really great summary of what Jesus was doing. You have to go back into chapter 4, the front end of Jesus' ministry. And in verse 23, he summarizes what Jesus was doing. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. 
Now you look at the screen, you can see that I've got two different colors there because Jesus essentially is doing two different things in his ministry. One, he is going around proclaiming the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom. He is teaching and preaching the kingdom. And secondly, he's manifesting the kingdom. He is undoing the curse of sin, the brokenness that sin has brought into this world. He's giving people a taste of what life is like in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has no sickness. It has no disease. There is no oppression. There is no brokenness. And so everywhere that Jesus went, he's talking with people about what the kingdom is like, and he's showing them that's even too weak. He's immersing them into the kingdom. And he's giving them a taste of what God's kingdom and what God's world are like. And then he turns around and he says to his followers, this is now your job. And he goes first to the apostles, the 12 who he called specially to follow him. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, we learn that he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He sends them out to do exactly the same two things that he's doing, teach about the kingdom and manifest the kingdom. Let people have an experience of the kingdom. Let them actually taste the goodness of what you're talking about. And so that we wouldn't think to ourselves, okay, well, that's the apostles. They're, they're, they're special. He then, in the very next chapter, chapter 10, turns around and sends 72 other disciples out. And among other things, he says to them in verse 9, heal the sick in the town where you are. Manifest the kingdom. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Proclaim the kingdom. He's telling his disciples, this is what I've been doing, now you do exactly the same thing out there in the larger world. That's the context that should be in the back of your mind as you come to Matthew 25, to this parable. And you start to understand that what we are supposed to be doing on this earth is exactly the same. We proclaim his kingdom both with our words and with our actions. We tell people about what this kingdom is like, and we let people actually touch it and feel it and experience it. So at the very least, we start to ask, okay, how am I using then what I've been given? You can think talents in two ways. Again, you remember talent is this physical unit of weight. And so you start asking, well, what are the, the physical resources that I've been given? How am I using them? How am I using my home, my car, my time, my money, my things? How am I using those to relieve suffering? to fight injustice, to lift oppression, to extend God's welcome to people who don't know him or who don't know anything about his kingdom. But you also realize that God's given you a whole lot more than physical resources. He's also given you skills and abilities, things that he expects that you're going to invest in the kingdom, things that he expects you're going to invest so they grow and develop. And he expects that as you develop them, you are going to give a sense of him even more broadly into this world than you already do. Now we could talk about a bunch of different places where you use those. I'm going to narrow our focus now to where we spend a lot of our time in our occupations, in our professions, in our careers, or if you're studying as a student in, your, in getting ready for your occupation and career. And so I wanna ask the question, how am I using where I spend most of my time, how, how is what I'm doing in my occupation relieving suffering? How does it fight injustice? How does it lift oppression? How does it extend God's welcome to people who don't know him, to people who are not used to him or his kingdom? 
In other words, if you are a disciple of Christ, if you're a Christian, you have to work harder than your secular counterparts. It's not enough for you to know and be an expert in your profession. You have to go the extra step and you have to ask the question, how does what I do fit into what God himself is doing? And here's now where I don't have the answer because you're actually the experts. You know your field far better than I do. I can give you the question, but you have to do the work. You have to learn to ask questions like, how does my medical specialization serve to lift the curse of suffering? You think, well, Bill, that's kind of obvious, okay? That's the softball question. When we're healing people, well, a lot of people go into medicine, you know this, not first and foremost to heal people, but for the income or for the prestige. And so if you've been given a medical talent, you have to learn how to ask, how has what God has given me, how am I using that to line up with what he is doing in the medical field? Or you learn to ask, how does my work as a teacher, as a professor, an instructor, a researcher, how does that let people experience God's kingdom here on earth? How does being a lawyer, a counselor, an engineer, an architect, political scientist, a financial investor, how does that influence the world so that people experience something beyond the daily brokenness that they're used to? How do my artistic pursuits, my dramatic interests, my musical contributions, how does that help people to experience this glorious God that we're talking about? How does my work in sales, in organizational management, administration, coding, communication or information technology, how does that push back suffering? How does it fight injustice? How does it lift burdens off others? How does it remove oppression? How does it let people breathe a little bit easier? How do I do that in the name of the king and his kingdom? You have to ask those questions because you know this. You know that every talent can be misused. You know that you can take these talents that this generous master has given to you and use them to build your kingdom to create and carve out a nice life for yourself. And you can go through your entire week using those talents that have nothing to do with the rest of his kingdom. And if what you are doing throughout the rest of the week has no observable difference for the kingdom, then there is no observable difference between the way you're using those talents and the way that the wicked servant used his. Every talent can be misused. And every talent can also be put to good use. Every talent that you have was given to you by the master. And that means that every one of them can be used to extend a sense of his presence, to give an experience of him that hasn't been felt before. Every talent can do that. Every talent needs to do that. So first, we saw that they only invest what they've been given. Second, how you invest what you've been given is either driven by love or it's driven by apathy. Third, here's the results of that investment. We'll start with the last servant first. Third servant is stripped of everything that he had in verse 28. And then Jesus says that very hard thing there in verse 29. It's actually a repeat of something that he said back earlier in chapter 13. In chapter 13, verse 12, we hear Jesus saying, For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, which is what happens to the servant. You cannot use God's gifts in a way that oppose him and expect to keep them. 
If you don't use them the way that he intended them to be used, you will lose them. If you don't use your gifts to increase the knowledge of God and the presence of God throughout the world, the gift fades away. But there's a judgment here that's worse than just losing a gift. The servant is thrown out into the darkness. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to realize that Jesus here is talking about hell. He's giving a picture here of real suffering, a picture of real pain. Now, why is this servant cast out just because he didn't do anything with what he'd been given? It's because this servant wants nothing to do with the master, wants nothing to do with God, wants nothing to do with God's agenda. And so God gives the servant their wish. They've rejected all of the goodness that God is, which means they end up in hell because hell is the complete and total absence of all of God's goodness. Hell is when you exist, but you don't want anything to do with God. Well, you don't want anything to do that with anything that reminds you of God. And that means then that you don't want goodness because that comes from God. You don't want life. That comes from God. You don't want beauty. You don't want gentleness. You don't want kindness or justice, those things that just pour out of God. But if you take all of those away, what are you left with? You're left with pain, ugliness, eternal death. It's a world that's impossible for us to even grasp because we, as much evil as you've experienced in this world, as much evil as is in the world, we still have the presence of God here. That has not been taken away. And so there are not actually words that I can use to describe the horror of what hell is. Hell is where all of, the, all of that is gone. If you reject the king, hell is what, you were, is what you asked for. But it's not what you were made for. And so we can't even describe how horrible it is to be separated from God. It is the logical end point, however, of setting yourself against God, of ignoring what God says in this world, of saying, you are not my master. I am. I will not serve you. When you say that, what are you saying? You're saying, I want nothing to do with you. I want to be infinitely far away from you, which means then I want to be infinitely far away from your goodness. You want to be so far away that there's nothing of him left that would relieve the misery that you've asked for for yourself. You learn here that what you do in life matters. How you interact with this God matters. The servant had gifts. All of humanity does. Unbelievably gracious gifts that God has given to each one of us. This servant refused to use them for the kingdom of God. He had no interest in the kingdom because he had no love for God. And in the end, he got what he wanted. The other two also got what they wanted, but they got way more than they expected. The master starts by commending them. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is the performance review that you want. There isn't a higher one. This is what you're aiming at at the end of life. You want to hear God say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. But then God goes even further. He gives them additional responsibility. He promises that they would be put in charge of many things since they'd been responsible for the little that he gave them. Now, think about what he just said. The little that he gave him was multiple times half a lifetime's income. That's little to God because his future is beyond what you and I are thinking. He wants to pour out so much into your world that's going to then advance his kingdom plans in this world, things that are going to be even more critical to getting done what he wants to accomplish. That's the future for the faithful servants. And yet there's something even better here. 
Master says in verse 28 that the worthless servant's talent now goes to the guy who has 10 talents. You say, wait a minute. Nobody's got talents. They came to give the master back his talents, right? Here's the five that you gave me. Here's the five that I earned. They're the master's talents. And apparently, the guy's still standing there holding them. The master didn't take them back. In fact, what's the master saying? He's saying, you keep those. You now have 10 talents. No, you have 11 talents. They're yours. Why? Because you're now a shareholder in the company. You're a part owner. You've demonstrated that you're committed to the mission that I'm committed to. So the master doesn't take the talents from him because he knows that this guy's going to keep using the talents for the sake of the master's mission. If you're not quite convinced, think about the last thing that he says to each of the two faithful servants. He says, enter into the joy of your master. Enter in, come, come, come on in and share this. Share my happiness, take part in it. Share my joy that my estate is growing, that my influence is now able to spread even further than it spread before. Come and share like it's yours, because it is. You've worked alongside me. You've invested with me. You now share in my joy at the way things are going. We're in this together. The result of their investment pays off with the future that we don't have words for. It's unspeakably glorious. It's as unspeakably glorious as the worthless servants is unspeakably wretched. So what do you do this morning if as you're hearing this, you're assessing and you're saying, man, I, I sound like I'm more in the category of the worthless servant. How, how do I go about being faithful? It won't happen by going home and trying harder. It won't happen if you say to yourself, okay, I need to do something today that's related to God's kingdom so I won't be thrown into the darkness. I'll go home and I'll, I'll, I'll do some online donation to the church. Or I'll volunteer for some kind of ministry. Or man, I'm in the wrong profession, the wrong job. I'll quit that and look for another one. That will not work. Why not? Because it's still not love. It's still fear. Doing good things is not going to make you love the master. If all you're trying to do is avoid the, the, the pain and misery of darkness. Fear is a powerful motivator, don't get me wrong. But fear on its own can never produce love. What does it do? It still keeps you centered on yourself. You still have your own agenda. You still have not embraced the master's agenda and said, that's better than anything I could imagine. Instead, you're still apathetic toward him. Let's put that case to the side. Let's talk, a different, talk about a different one. What happens if you are faithful? But you know there's still room to grow in your faithfulness. You know that while you are invested, you'd like to be even more so. What happens if you're like me this morning, talking to myself here? How do you go from being invested in God's kingdom to even more so, so that it, 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 it's everything that you think about, it, it's what you eat and breathe all day long, so that it occupies your mind and, and your, your, everything that you have? The answer is actually the same for both. You embrace what Jesus did on the cross. See, you realize that Jesus wasn't simply content to give you and me talents that we would misuse. And every single one of us in this room has misused our talents. We've taken what this generous master has given us, and we've used them for things that had nothing to do with his kingdom. We're all in the same situation. No one has ever consistently used all that God's given to them to see his kingdom expand further than it already had. 
And in response to our wicked misuse of his gifts, this generous God gives us another gift. He didn't just give you your gifts, your talents, your resources. He decided to give you something so that you could be faithful with your gifts, your talents, and your resources. That's why Jesus came to this earth. Jesus became human. Jesus is the one through whom everything else was made. He is the master beyond compare, and he became a servant. Actually, he didn't just become a servant. He became the lowest servant, and he spent his entire life faithfully serving so that everything that he did extended the kingdom of God. So when all the accounts were settled, he should have had heard the father say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That is not the first thing that he heard. And he didn't hear that because he and the father had made a deal. He took your worthlessness and my worthlessness on himself on the cross. And so the first thing that he heard from his father was, you wicked, lazy servant. Cast him out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You hear that experience when Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I in the darkness? He deserved joy. He wept and he gnashed his teeth instead. And he endured that darkness until every account of every one of his people was settled. If you believe that that's what he's doing on the cross, taking your worthlessness on himself, you get something in return. You get his faithfulness. You get the smile of God who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. If you wrestle with apathy today, meditate on that. We'll spend a few minutes after the message for you to have some time. But don't end here. Take this home. Do not dig a hole and bury it today. Take it home and dwell on it. Jesus took your worthlessness so you could have his joy. Let that melt your apathy. And when it does, you will invest everything that you have. Because there isn't anybody better that the whole rest of this world ought to know about. Lord Jesus, We deserve what you got. You deserve so much better than you got. Take a moment now. Allow your, your heart to, to talk to the Lord about that trade that he made with you. heart turn toward thankfulness, gratitude that Jesus would do that, that he would work to make you faithful.
Our God, we want to be people who are worthy servants, who are thrilled to embrace what you're up to, who are invested with everything that we have, who want to see your kingdom come, who want to see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we want to be those people who are always thinking how we could invest more. Lord, thank you for making that possible. Lord, keep working in our hearts and let us enter into your joy knowing that you have wiped away everything that was ever worthless about us.